Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the Big, Big Dinosaur, Dinosaur Podcast, Podcast, where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today's podcast is brought to you by the Royal Tyrrell Museum, which is located in southern Alberta, Canada. It's one of the top paleontological research institutes in the world. The entire museum is dedicated to the science of paleontology. It's definitely a must-see for every dinosaur enthusiast. More information can be found at TyrrellMuseum.com. And by Permia, a prehistoric apparel and art brand dedicated to creating collectible, scientifically accurate restorations of ancient life. Their clothing and artwork are available now on their Kickstarter page at permia.com kickstarter. This week we have an interview with Dan Chur and Taya Budhu, who we got a chance to talk to at SVP. It was a really fun interview about Dinosaur National Monument. Our dinosaur of the day is Saltasaurus, and we have a ton of dinosaur news. Yes, and some SVP news. Yep. And this week, we'd especially like to thank Kyle, Brendan, and the Tolbert family for contributing to our Patreon at the $5 level, where they get a shout-out every month. Yay! Thanks, everyone! Yeah, it means a lot to us. Thank you. So jumping right into the news, there's a sort of new dinosaur, and it's one of those cases of a genus reviving, kind of like Brontosaurus, and it happens all the time. It's really not that exciting, but it's worth mentioning. So Lusotitan atalaensis was originally found back in the 1940s in Portugal, and it's estimated to be from about 152 million years ago in the late Jurassic. Since then, it has been compared and potentially synonymized with Brachiosaurus and Giraffatitan. And in 2004, it was described as an incertisidus, which is a Latin word meaning that the taxonomy of the group is unknown. So basically, it had gone back and forth and was weird enough that they just kind of declared, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody agreed on that. That was just one paper that said that. But a new paper in Historical Biology by Mocho and others indicates that Lusotitan is different enough to warrant its own genus. So strangely, the original wasn't assigned to a holotype. So a lectotype was assigned in 2003 to an individual, and a lectotype is basically just a holotype, but later. <laughs> the researchers used the lectotype in this research, but also some previously unpublished fossils. They ended up with a lot of vertebrae, parts of the legs, hips, and ribs to do their analysis on, and it looks like they spanned at least two individuals, which is helpful for determining if features are significant. We talked a little bit about how using a single individual to determine whether a species or genus is significant is kind of problematic, so it's nice that they have more than one to work with. And in the end, their analysis placed Lusotitan as a sister taxon to Brachiosaurus and a close relative to Giraffatitan. So good news if you're a fan. Of Lusotitan, yes. Mm -hmm. I don't really think it has any particularly big fans. You never know. But could be, yeah. <laughs> if you're from Portugal, yeah. you know, it's a Portuguese dinosaur, so that's pretty cool. And it makes sense because they had seen brachiosaurs on the Iberian Peninsula before, so, and it's late Jurassic, 
There were a few people calling it uh, Titanosaur, but that is a little early for Titanosaurs. Next, The Atlantic wrote about Rich Bukowski's recent research that found that young tyrannosaurs live different lifestyles from their parents. And Bukowski studied tyrannosaur hind legs, upper jaws, and teeth and found that juveniles were faster than adults because their leg bones had proportions similar to modern fast-running animals. And we've talked about that a bit before, how juveniles were faster. But uh, anyway, he also found that as they aged, tyrannosaur teeth became less narrow and blade-like and more rounded, like spikes, and that their jaws also became shorter, which shows that they may have changed the way they hunted and ate as they grew older. So a reason for this big change may be because a juvenile would not want to compete with an adult for food, so it's better to have a different lifestyle. However, not all tyrannosaurs developed the exact same way. So T-Rex, for example, had bigger changes growing up than Displetosaurus, possibly because T-Rex was more of an apex predator type and Displetosaurus lived alongside Gorgosaurus, so T-Rex could afford to fill these different roles ecologically. Bukowski described young and adult T-Rex as being like two predators in one, so adults would have been like lions and tigers and take down and overpower prey, while juveniles would run after prey and wear them down like wolves. Still, he said there needs to be more fossils and more species to help with this research, especially since many tyrannosaurs are known from just one individual from an incomplete skeleton. And he was one of the presentations at SVP as well. Yeah, and there's always the problem of determining whether it is a juvenile of the same species or if it's just a similar, smaller species. True. Yeah. Like the debate between Nanotyrannus and T-Rex. Yeah, so it just depends who you ask. <laughs> yep. Next up, Marcus Klaus and his colleagues just published a paper in the Journal of Anatomy to test the hypothesis that tetrapod herbivores have big body cavities for large guts compared to carnivores. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, we've mentioned this before with some herbivorous dinosaurs and how they might have had wide hips and a big gut and how that kind of works to digest that know, less nutrient-rich diet. It takes a little longer to grind up those leaves and things than it does to digest some meat. So the conventional wisdom has been that carnivores don't need as big of a stomach to digest their food as herbivores need. So they tested 126 terrestrial tetrapods, including non-avian dinosaurs, in their research. They estimated the torso size using the minimum convex hull methodology that we talked about before, which is it's basically like if you stretch flesh and skin across a skeleton and kind of imagine what its body would have looked like. So that can be easy or could be hard depending on how you look at it, and it leaves obviously a fair amount of variability. But they found that, quote, the difference in relative torso volume between diet types was significant in mammals, where relative torso volumes of herbivores was about twice as large as that of carnivores, supporting the general hypothesis, end quote. So the conventional wisdom works for mammals, but how about other animals? So they also looked at diapsids, which is basically like the monophyletic group of reptiles. I talked about how reptiles are all messy because we don't consider certain descendants to be reptiles and other ones we do. Diapsids and synapsids split in the order of 300 million years ago and humans are on the synapsid side with mammals 
and then dinosaurs and birds and things are on the diapsid side. And non-avian dinosaurs and other diapsids did not match the trend, possibly because of their different respiratory system. And in both cases, things got weird when the animals got big, (laughs) which really doesn't bode well for predicting dinosaur diets. And by big, I mean rhino to elephant size, not even, you know, sauropod T-Rex size, (laughs) which is just a whole nother level of big. So that's not great. And then looking at the graphs in the study, I mean, if you didn't, if the lines weren't already drawn on it showing the correlation, I'm not sure I would have come to the same conclusion. And they did say that the statistical power of the study isn't great. And it would be nice if they could get more samples, especially with things like dinosaurs. They only use 10 different dinosaurs. So it's a good preliminary study. It did seem to show some difference between carnivorous and herbivorous mammals, but outside of that, it didn't really give a ton of information. So the main reason we wanted to cover this, though, is that if we could get a link between body type and diet, it would be super useful, obviously, because you could look at something where right now we're not sure if it's a carnivore or an herbivore or an omnivore. And if we could tell based on this minimum convex hull methodology what kind of diet it might have had, we could figure out all these different dinosaurs' behaviors in terms of hunting. So I hope that they come up with a way to make this work, but since it didn't work for large animals or reptiles, it's probably not a great start. Maybe if they get more specimens. Yeah. Or if they come up with something that's a little bit more precise than a minimum convex hull or a different take on the same idea. Yeah. Well, speaking of large dinosaurs, David Moscato answered a question recently on whether lightning was a problem for tall dinosaurs (laughs) on his blog, The Meniscus. So basically, he says that tall objects are often more likely to be struck by lightning But then modern animals like cows or reindeer, for example, there was a recent case of 300 reindeer that all died from lightning. Yeah, that's crazy. So they're sometimes killed when they're near a lightning strike. There's also uh, tall animals like giraffes don't seem to be struck more often than other animals by lightning, at least anecdotally. But then you think about dinosaurs, which were huge, especially sauropods. On the surface level saying it doesn't seem like lightning would have been a problem for them since there were so many dinosaurs and so many sauropods and so many different types. But there's no easy way to tell from a fossil if the animal was struck by lightning. One way could be by looking at fossilized skin and seeing if there's fractal scarring from lightning, but again, fossilized skin is a rare find. So the answer is we don't really know. Yeah, and there's the whole idiom about it's like being struck by lightning for something being very rare Mm -hmm. and combining that with how rare fossils are (laughs) and fossilized skin on top of that the odds of ever finding evidence of it are pretty slim yeah and the odds of finding enough to get some kind of statistical sample size is pretty much impossible yeah but it's an interesting question to think about it is really interesting and to your point about reindeer Being tall isn't the only thing that gets you hit by lightning. The main thing is being in like an open field. 
And that case recently where there was the record number of reindeer getting killed by a single lightning strike, it happened because all these reindeers had huddled together, yeah, I guess in the rain. Mm -hmm. And then when the lightning struck, it didn't actually hit all 300 of them. What happens is this: the electricity flows through the ground, and if you have four legs on the ground, it'll go up your legs and then down your, you know, your front legs and down your back legs or up your one side of the legs and down the other side. And the problem when you have four legs is your heart is in between those legs. When you're a person and the same kind of thing happens where lightning's traveling through the ground, it goes up one leg and down the other leg, but there's no essential organs in your legs. And there's not a lot of stuff in between there, so it's not as big of a deal. Yeah, so that was one of the comments on this post, uh, was kind of talking about that. But then there was discussion like, well, does it even matter with sauropods? Because they're so big and everything's so far apart at that point. Yeah, that's true too. Because you have to be within a certain distance for the charge to take an effect. And if your leg is like 50 feet away, the lightning might not even <laughs> want to go that path. It's yeah, it's an interesting question. With smaller animals, though, because it happens all the time in four-legged animals, like deer and sheep get killed in huge numbers all the time. So, well, maybe not all the time, but often enough that there's good data on them. So you could imagine like hadrosaurs or, you know, some of these smaller ceratopsians or something dying in mass, especially if they were in a herd. That'd be crazy to find that kind of bone bed. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Maybe one of the bone beds was caused by that, where we have a whole bunch of dead dinosaurs. Maybe, but, but then there's a certain kind of scarring you're supposed to be able to see. Only if you have the skin, though. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And I I don't know about... I guess maybe there'd be scarring, but if it's going up your feet, it would only be on the bottom of the foot mm. that you'd get the scarring. If you got hit directly, like on the head of a sauropod or something, then yeah, you'd see it there, too. They do look kind of like giant lightning rods. The other thing is there were a lot of forests back then too. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like modern Montana where it's just barren. So if there are a bunch of trees around you that are taller than you, you wouldn't have to worry about it either. Then it's more likely a tree fell on them and hit them. <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe they died that way. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very interesting topic. There's also a new article about bugs that were around with dinosaurs and how well they survived the Chicxulub impact. So researchers Donovan and colleagues published their findings in Nature, and what they were doing was examining thousands of these fossilized leaves from Patagonia, which is one of the areas we talk about a lot in South America because we find a lot of titanosaurs there. And they were looking for insect damage in these fossilized leaves, which is basically an indicator of whether or not there were a lot of insects around because one of the things insects like to do is eat plants. <laughs> so they concluded that in about 4 million years, the insects of South America had completely recovered from the end Cretaceous mass extinction. And Donovan said, quote, We found that plant-feeding insects in Patagonia recovered much faster after the asteroid that hit Mexico 66 million years ago compared to insects in the Western United States, end quote. And that's based on other research from Western North America, which found that it took about 9 million years for insects here to recover after the Cretaceous mass extinction. And to me, that's really strange because, first of all, insects can fly pretty easily. And especially in a time like that where 
It's not like it was really cold in one area and warm in the other area. And they're both pretty similar distance from the Chicxulub impactor. So you'd expect kind of similar fallout. Like why 5 million years is a super long time for the bugs not to just fly across. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's very strange to me. But it does make me wonder how this might have affected dinosaur radiation after the Permian-Triassic extinction event which is, you know, basically when dinosaurs were taken over, or even after the relatively smaller Triassic-Jurassic extinction, when we saw a shift in some of the dinosaur clads, if maybe there were different shifts depending on where they were relative to whatever caused the extinction and other factors. It's interesting. It's hard with dinosaurs to tell how many of them there were around, though. We don't yeah. have a convenient thing like how many leaves they were eating like we do for these insects. It'd be really cool if we could come up with a way to figure out how well distributed they were, though. Yeah, would be. So next, Earth Archives posted about dinosaurs that have been found in Mexico. You know, a lot of times we talk about dinosaurs, you talk about them in North America, but specifically the U.S. and Canada. But there's a fair number of them in Mexico. So most of them lived in the late Cretaceous, and they include... Labocania, a tyrannosaur named in 1974. There's also an unnamed tyrannosaur from the El Gallo locality that was described in 2014, but it's too fragmentary to be properly classified. There's Magnapolia, a tyrannosaur that's been found with skin impressions. Velifrons and Laterhinus, uh, hadrosaurs that lived near each other but ate different foods so they could live together, basically coexist. Saltiomimus, an ornithomimid about the size of an ostrich, and Coahuila ceratops, a ceratopsian. So that's actually quite a lot of tyrannosaurs. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Those are the ones that make the news anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next up, I just want to give a quick summary of some of the cool scientific methods that were talked about a lot at SVP. So... First off, we've got Raman spectroscopy, which was pretty exciting to me. It's basically, in paleontology at least, in the topics that we heard discussed, a type of laser fluorescence. So that's where you hit a sample with a high-power laser, and then, eh, I guess it doesn't have to be that high-power, but with a laser, and then that actually excites the molecules, and they emit their own colors and light, and then you interpret the color of that light to mean different things about the bonds or the other chemistry that's going on in the sample. And the really cool thing about Raman spectroscopy is that it works through amber and it's completely non-destructive and doesn't really require any preparation. So you can take a piece of amber and you can hit it with these lasers, measure the resulting spectrum, and figure out things about what sort of pigments or other keratins or minerals or proteins may have fossilized. All those things are potentially possible, although I don't think they've found all of them. The most exciting thing to me, though, was that it has a potential for keratinoids, which are things that give blue, red, and green colors to things like feathers. And we were talking earlier about how melanosomes really only tell you about that iridescent black and red. But if we can get blue, red, and green from this, we can get some really cool information about dinosaur colors. <laughs> So, yeah, 
The one downside is that it's really easily contaminated. That's too bad. So you have to be really careful with your results. Yeah. I got two other ones I want to talk about. <laughs> we talk about synchrotrons a fair amount, and there was a lot of talk about synchrotrons at SVP. So we've talked about basically it's a big toroid donut-shaped thing that accelerates an X-ray beam, and then you can use that to analyze your fossils. The most interesting thing that they talked about here was that the Stanford one near us can do a full fossil and they had a picture of an archaeopteryx <laughs> entire specimen in front of one of the beam lines that they were analyzing and it can also tell you a little bit about what kind of metals are preserved in the bone but much like the Raman spectroscopy it can also easily be contaminated by glues or fingerprints so it's best to do all this kind of spectrum analysis before there's much of any preservation or excavation done. And the last one I want to mention is this really cool technique that's not very sensitive to contamination. And what they do is they look for beta carotene on fossilized samples, and they do it by making anti-beta carotene antibodies and then putting them on the sample along with something that allows them to be fluoresced and then you shine a light on it and you see if all these antibodies have collected around it and that tells you that they found beta carotene oh yeah that was cool yeah it was really cool a few people were using this technique mostly to check for if things were feathers and the main reason it works so well is that beta carotene is in feathers of everything that has feathers since that's a bird thing <laughs> and it evolved about 278 million years ago which was after synapsids split off from diapsids so humans don't have beta carotene we have alpha carotene so you don't have to worry about people accidentally getting all their carotene on your <laughs> on your feathers when you're testing them because they have their different kind of carotene and then the other cool thing about it is that Beta carotene is a different structure. So alpha carotene is what's in our hair and it's a little bit more flexible. It's also in our skin, apparently. Beta carotene is in reptile skin, which is apparently why it's also stiffer. And then it's in their feathers. So it's pretty interesting. And it's a really slick way to figure out if it is in fact a feather or if it's just some other, you know, dark spot on a fossil. Cool. Yeah. Really cool technology that's being used for paleontology. On a much less technical side, <laughs> <laughs> Denny Lon wrote on Medium about finding prehistoric fossils in your backyard, specifically in New Jersey. He and fellow scientist Cindy spent a day with Ralph Johnson, who's from the Monoth Amateur Paleontological Society, and they walked up a stream near a neighborhood in New Jersey where they could still hear cars on the highway. And they found this spot that where they found a lot of shark teeth as well as two mosasaur teeth, which are apparently rare in the East Coast, the mosasaur teeth. So for people who want to go on their own fossil hunts, Juan recommends getting in touch with an amateur paleo group or joining a dig or attending a local meetup like the New York Paleontological Society, which it's cool that you can just kind of walk up and be like, hey guys, I want to go fossil hunting today. <laughs> yeah, the paleontology group is usually pretty open to volunteers mm -hmm. and it's a good 
a good way to get some exercise and do some science and all that at the same time. Do yeah, some exploring. If you don't live on the East Coast, apparently Alabama is also a good place in the U.S. to find fossils. This is according to AL.com. At least east of the Mississippi River, it's good to find fossils. So a lot of Alabama was covered in water when dinosaurs were around. So you have to head south in the state. And there are a lot of plant fossils in the Cahaba River. You can also see dinosaurs at the McWayne Science Center in Birmingham. And they feature fossils of Appalachiosaurus, of Tyrannosaurs, as well as a Dromaeosaur and Ornithomimid. So it's interesting because I would not have thought of Alabama as a fossil place, but I guess we did meet people who were doing their thesis in Arkansas too. So Yeah, I know Alabama does have a pretty cool, I want to say Mosasaur, but it's some big marine reptile in their natural history museum. So... Yeah. yeah, I guess just when I think dinosaurs, I think Morrison and Hell Creek Formation. And yeah, I think they have a little states. bit more marine stuff than they have dinosaur stuff. But, I mean, there's some dinosaur stuff there, too. Yeah. Next, The Atlantic posted a short film, Valley of the Last Dinosaurs, which follows Tyler Lyson in the Hell Creek Formation in North Dakota, speaking of Hell Creek, as he digs for <laughs> dinosaurs. So Lyson grew up in the Badlands, and he always wanted to be a dinosaur hunter. So he talks about what he looks for when hunting fossils, which is he looks for lichen, and he looks for different shapes and colors. And it's similar to what we learned on our dig with Two Medicine when we went back in July. And he also leads digs with volunteers, and he teaches them what to look for, and he talks about also using jackets to protect fossils when excavating. And the film shows Lyson and his team removing ceratopsium fossils, including a frill, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And last, in Dubai, Dubai Garden Glow, which has built a glow theme park, <laughs> which sounds awesome, they recently unveiled 100 animatronic dinosaurs in its new dinosaur park, which is part of the glow park. This is according to Dubai 92. And the website features pictures and information about some of the dinosaurs, though some of the dinosaurs that they include are actually not dinosaurs. I noticed a Dimetrodon, but yeah. still cool. <laughs> That's a tale as old as time. <laughs> Does, do things glow? Uh, not in the dinosaur park, I don't think, but the glow park is a bunch of LEDs. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was thinking about, like we're going to talk about in a minute, in uh, Dinosaur National Monument, when they thought about painting glow-in-the-dark things on the fossils so oh, that yeah. they would glow at night. <laughs> not quite the same. That's good. Before we get into our interview, we have another word from Permia. Permia makes beautiful clothing and collectibles featuring their unique, scientifically accurate paleo art. Their specialty shirts, cards, and canvases are designed in collaboration with world-renowned paleontologist Scott Hartman. And Permia is an apparel and art brand that fuses ancient life with modern style. You can purchase collectible cards that have a 3D skeletal effect, and you can actually feel the bones on the cards because of the 3D printing. And... They're really vibrant colors. They actually, they caught my eye at SVP, and I had to buy one of each of the dinosaur cards. <laughs> yeah, I think they have six total cards. Four of them are, you know, full-fledged dinosaurs. And they're all really cool because what they did was they 3D printed a skeleton on a card. So it's just like a kind of a relief of a skeleton. But then on top of that, they printed 
a paleo art kind of restoration of an animal on top of it. And they're all based on real animals. So they got inspiration from the coloration and patterns on lots of different ones. And we don't remember what all of them are, but the example on their Kickstarter shows a mosasaur, which is based on a particular lizard or reptile that has a really cool blue and black pattern. So then they reused that pattern, but in like a more stylized version for their recreation. It's really cool looking. Yeah, and my favorite is the Amargosaurus, which is yellow with these brownish and maybe some dark green spots. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And Amargosaurus is just generally awesome, so that makes it Mm -hmm. (laughs) interesting too. And the back of the cards all have some information about the animal as well. Yeah, it's interesting. The ones that they picked, they didn't pick like T-Rex and Triceratops. Like the two that I'm holding are Ceratosaurus and Styracosaurus, which are both kind of well-known, but they're, you know, not the super popular ones. Yeah, and they've also got Bambi Raptor. And then on their list, if they raise enough money, their next ones include like Anzu and Parasaurolophus. No T-Rex on their list. Yeah, it's cool. I really like the ones that they chose. And Styracosaurus always looks awesome. I, I like the coloration that they picked on it, too. They gave it a yellow head with a blue body. <laughs> and then the backs of all the cards, too, have a bunch of facts about when they lived, where they lived, how much they weighed, how big they were, when they were discovered, and some other little details about them. It's really cool. And on their Kickstarter, aside from the cards, they also have super soft t-shirts that have the recreation of the dinosaur on the front and then the skeleton on the back of the shirt. They also have really cool what they call paleoscape canvases, which are two by three foot. And we saw one at the SVP auction that looked really awesome. And I was tempted to bid on it, but I had, we had no way to get it home. So <laughs> that was the problem with yeah. a lot of the bids. Yeah. But if you buy it on Kickstarter, obviously you'll get it shipped to you, so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, so their Kickstarter is going on from now until November 30th. And if you pledge $8 or more, you'll get one of these really cool x-ray cards. That's what they call it, the 3D printed cards. So you can learn more about Permia on their Kickstarter page at permia.com slash kickstarter. Yep, it's definitely worth checking out and seeing if you want any of their art or shirts or cards. And now on to our interview with Dan Schur and Taya Budhu, who worked on the Dinosaur National Monument Digital Quarry Project. Dan Schur has been the paleontologist at Dinosaur National Monument since 1979. And the Digital Quarry Project is really his initiative to share this amazing resource at Dinosaur National Monument with researchers and interested public throughout the world. And Taya Budhu, who we spoke to back with the Institute for the Study of Mongolian Dinosaurs a few months back, is a communications professional who seeks out challenges in natural sciences and led the web development on the beta version of the Digital Quarry Project. So now on to the interview. Very basic question for Dan. So you've been at the Dinosaur National Monument more than just about anybody. What uh, kind of changes have you seen throughout your time there? 
Well, probably the major change is the completion of the excavation of the main bone layer in the Carnegie Quarry that's inside the quarry exhibit hall. And now moving from that emphasis on a single site out to the wide range of formations and the rich fossil record that's scattered throughout Dinosaur National Monument. And as amazing as the Carnegie Quarry deposit is, it turns out the rocks outside of that building are equally amazing in the diversity and abundance of fossils and the tremendous range of ecosystems that's preserved in Dinosaur. Cool. You've recently did the Digital Quarry Project, and that's basically a project to show all of the fossil wall online. Is that right? Well, the the Carnegie Quarry has a very long and complex history, both as a site that was extensively excavated and material taken away to uh, outside institutions and prepared and studied. A large part of it left unexcavated that is now inside the building with about 1,500 dinosaur bones exposed and left in place just as they were deposited. And then an extension of that sandstone layer outside the building for a couple of hundred meters that is basically unexcavated. So those are three different kind of data sets for the same deposit. And associated with that kind of historical complexity, becoming a national park, developing an in-situ exhibit, there's an immense and rich historical, personal, scientific, interpretive, planning, construction history. And the Digital Quarry Project and the Carnegie Quarry website are designed to make that huge amount of data available to anyone who might be interested, historians, architects, paleontologists, the public, and kind of the most, maybe the most interesting part of that is the Digital Quarry Project, which is involves the existing quarry and the bones and data associated with them. Right. So that's an ongoing project, right? It's It's an unending project, in a sense. We are primarily dealing with our own archives right now, but there's extensive archives at the Carnegie Museum and the Smithsonian um, that we haven't even touched yet. So it's very large and it's very organic. So we will, as data becomes available, we continue to digitize it and get it and upload it. And 20 years ago, you would try to do this as a book, which would have to be severely restricted in scope and size and be out of print. And the great thing about doing this on the web is that it's permanently available and it's easy to modify and grow and expand. Cool. So I think on the web page where you can explore the wall and click on the bones and see pictures and details, it says that there are about 550 bones on it now and there's a total of 1,500. Is that right? Or... Well, in the wall that's excavated, but then there's been another couple thousand that have actually been fully excavated. Correct. Right? So how does the what's the process for adding more bones like? <laughs> I'll take that one. <laughs> so we started out with one leg for the very first prototype, which we didn't really show anybody. And it was just to see if we could uh, make it work last summer in 2015 to see how like we could take the illustrations that had been done the prior summer by some GeoCore America participants and turn them into interactive web assets. Hmm. And that first bone, it was you click on it or you roll over it and you see the name of the bone. 
And then it evolved over the course of 12 weeks into something a little bit bigger. We took a small section of the wall that had those 550 bones. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a lot of bones. It is a small section of that wall. <laughs> but it does have some pretty cool bones. So we got the piece, the, the part that had the Camasaurus skull mm -hmm. and an articulated leg. So... It's probably the most charismatic part of the wall. <laughs> and we started there for a launch to be able to have a proof of concept and to really get the ball rolling and say, hey, we've, we've got this kicked off now. Mm -hmm. And the process, uh, how detailed do you want me to get? <laughs> because I can tell you about creating the SVG file and <laughs> how I got into PHP, but maybe no one really wants to hear that. <laughs> maybe not, actually. <laughs> I was all for it, and then we started getting computer science. Right. <laughs> so I have a little bit of information about that in my poster. <laughs> maybe we can go over it later, and then you can decide. Cool. <laughs> well, basically, in order to add a new one, there's several steps. So... We're working with a base illustration. That's that Illustrator file that Ben O2 worked on in 2014. Mm -hmm. And that has to be, uh, let's see, I actually did a little bit of work last summer updating the whole rest of the file to make sure that the individual paths for each bone mm -hmm. are named with the uh, corresponding catalog number. Mm. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite detailed. So the catalog number, it turns out in Illustrator, this is actually sort of a really fun accidental discovery. I had like a hunch and then followed through and it amazingly worked out wonderfully. <laughs> that never happens. <laughs> but when you take the path name in Illustrator and you give it a specific descriptive name, in this case, we picked the catalog number so that we had corresponding paths to catalog numbers. So the illustration of a femur is the same as the actual catalog number that goes to that femur. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then we export it as an SVG file, which is, it doesn't really matter what that is anyway, but it means that there's a corresponding piece of text that has now that catalog number. So when I went back through and was trying to design it, I was able to then make that individual path interactive. Hmm. And that was pretty awesome to find out how easy that turned out to be actually. <laughs> and it meant that we got a lot more done in 2015 than Dan or anybody, and even especially me, maybe, <laughs> really thought was possible. And we were able to launch that website for the public on the anniversary of the park in October of that year. Hmm. And it's still the limited part. So in order to add any new bone, we would never do it one by one. So we took that first smaller section of 550, 51, actually, no. you're very close, <laughs> fossils first, and then Phase two would be to say, have all of the fossils that are there in the modern quarry that are on display in the quarry exhibit hall, and then eventually expand out, maybe in sections as we get the data together, or maybe all at once if we end up doing it that way. We don't have a specific outline for that yet. But eventually to have all of the historic fossils from the quarry as well, and that almost quadruples the total number mm. from the modern quarry. So it's insane <laughs> actually it's an insane number of fossils yeah but the svg file format gives us such a small like compact web experience that we're that we'd be able to have that really be realistic with small loading times cool so it's yeah, still it, mobile friendly it's a pretty good website i mean even on the hotel internet here it was easy to go through and click on everything and that's really good to hear yeah. <laughs> i haven't tried it yet <laughs> The, um, so there's is it about a thousand left in the actual wall 
Probably that's pretty close. Yeah. yeah. There's a thousand missing still from the website that are in the current. You definitely got, well, you got all the ones that I remember when I was looking <laughs> at it. I was like, there are more, but there's so many to remember. Like I remember the Stegosaurus plates are in there. Yeah. And then you said there's the um, Camarasaurus skull mm-hmm. and neck going along with it and the big leg from the Diplodocid. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's a Diplodocid. Actually, their first, the first prototype was that Diplodocus leg and I made the title of that <laughs> demo website a diplodocus leg <laughs> that's how i remember <laughs> that's funny yeah cool but then you have there's also this picture on there and it shows the modern wall and then inside that there's a little picture of what is on the website but then outside that is the one where it shows everything else that's oh, been excavated yeah, like yeah. you said yeah so one of the other geocore participants from 2015 mm-hmm. put together a little map that has that whole illustration yeah. and then she marked off like the area that was included. That was a good. That was a good thing to do. It was so really helpful. <laughs> was it literally like all one face, like that picture looks like, or is that a little Had bit simplified? Dan. So the bone deposit is in a sandstone layer that's about six meters, or so, twenty feet thick, hmm. and the rock above it and below it are mudstones. They don't have any fossils, so it's a very concentrated deposit that occurs. The bones are ultimately buried in the bottom of a river channel and the river is probably 25 feet deep or so the geologists who've studied that said and maybe a couple hundred feet across so it's not particularly huge river but it's a permanent river that flows more or less year-round unless there are sustained droughts Hmm. so we do know the bone layer is very restricted so and so in effect removing the sandstone layer is what happened historically in collecting the bones so when you look at that map, everything above the outline of the existing quarry is completely gone. Mm. The entire top of the hill and the east and west sides no longer exist. Those are now um, air or space around the existing quarry. So if you're in the quarry building looking at the sandstone layer, mm-hmm. to see the extent on that map, you have to imagine that sandstone layer extending another 50 feet up in the air okay. and 100 or 150 feet on each side. And that's what they and originally so they've completely, found? Yeah, right. The original discovery was about 50 feet above the top of the existing quarry. Wow. That's really amazing. <laughs> it, it's an immense quarry. And when Earl Douglas found those first eight tail vertebrae sticking out of the ground, he, I'm sure he had no idea. <laughs> I mean, you can read his um, diary entries. And after about a month and a half, he says, this may take more time than we originally <laughs> thought because by then he had started to run across multiple sauropod skeletons and those are the biggest dinosaurs you can possibly find. Yeah, those are great. And this was back in 1915, right? Well, the original discovery was in 1909. Oh, okay. And the Carnegie excavated there between 1909 and 1922. Smithsonian came in 1923. The University of Utah came in in 1924 and that was the last year of that historic excavation phase. It became a national monument in 1915, but the excavations continued under yearly permits. Wow. And I saw on the website, too, there's a a great section of the history of the quarry, right, and the people who have worked there over the years. So a lot of the articles that are on the website were written mostly by Elliot Smith, who was another GeoCorps participant. And I know Trinity... Um, Trinity Sterling, who's a geologist, who was another GeoCore America participant, did a number of them as well. And they're based largely on the archives that we had in the library there. So a large part of the summer that we spent working on this together 
was spent in. <laughs> uh, can I describe the library? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so after the renovation of the exhibit hall a few years ago, there I, there had been a lab and a proper library at one point, but those are no longer, and it all got moved into one of the employee housing houses. And so the, there's a garage. <laughs> And it's now a library, and it's been sealed, and there's an air conditioner and whatnot. It's mostly mouse-proof, I think, um, (laughs) as long as you keep the door closed. (laughs) And there's a ton of material in there just packed in. So every single wall on all sides is just covered with books and records. And we spent a long time going through and digitizing those. And as we were digitizing them, we started having all these ideas for articles that we should have. And of course, Dan already had something that he'd wanted to do before. And when we went, we found new material. And um, also we got ideas for posters and other things. So just a ton came out of that. And the 100-year history in a park, you get a lot of interesting things. So that covers the entire Cold War, both World Wars, the Vietnam War, the Great Depression, so many amazing like bits of history in there. And so when we were working on those articles, and I know Elliot was really interested in that kind of stuff too, so he made a point of trying to like explore what was going on in the park at those times. And there's probably a lot more we could still add. <laughs> but yeah, for 12 weeks of work about a year ago, and it only happens in spurts like that. So it's growing at a pretty good pace, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then a lot more got done last summer, too. So yeah. every summer you work on it a little bit more. Is that, That's how yes. it's been going so far. Yeah. And then there's also everything is on GitHub, right? So anybody who knows PHP and can develop Correct. and help. So uh, one of the last things I did on the project in 2015 before I stepped away to work on some other things was put all of the relevant web files on GitHub and just sort of made sure that in our press release, people knew that they could contribute. And and no one's had much bandwidth to do a lot of work um, in the off-season on this because at that point, it's, you know, in your free time. But we we have had a couple of people who are interested in doing a little bit of work, and we got a nice bit of code from somebody um, last summer that helped actually solve one of the big problems with a digital quarry. So not to get too technical again, but... Each one of those bones has a thing called a modal window that comes up. That's what we call it. And that's just the little panel that opens and the back kind of dims out. So you're just looking at this little card that's information about the bone. We call it a modal. So each one of those is a piece of code. And I didn't know too much about how to really pull this off when I started it. So, And we were working with a, a limited number of bones. So it was feasible. And I hand-did each one of those. But I knew that there must be a way... <laughs> To, <laughs> I knew there must be a way to make that more efficient and to basically create one modal in the code that then fed in the data, you know, mm-hmm. and so that it was much less work to not have to hand create each one of those, which seemed insane to me. Um, and we did get a little piece of that puzzle that was missing fixed last summer. So that actually was great progress and it opens the door for making much faster progress as soon as we, we have um, some more bandwidth to get back in it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Last question about the original wall. Is there enough information in the records? Because I know a lot of the old excavations weren't recorded super well, where you can actually tell what part of the wall some of these original Carnegie excavations were from, where you could feasibly make a pseudo-digital you know, quarry for that section. Well, Earl Douglas actually was 
very careful in the excavations and realized very early on, especially since he hit a very dense part of the quarry right off, that it was going to be important to keep an accurate map. It turned out to be way more important than he thought it would be because it extended over 15 years in multiple institutions. So he actually painted with black paint four-foot grids on the quarry face and then would map the bones and then the bones would be removed. And then those had coordinates, the vertical and horizontal components of the grid, and they just followed that in both directions as they did the excavations. So the end result is for the historic maps for the huge amount of material that has been removed, we actually have a very accurate map, and we know the relationships of all those bones to one another. The tricky bit is how does that relate to the existing quarry? Mm. So we can position those correctly. And fortunately, there are one or two specimens that continue from the present-day quarry onto the historic maps, and that allows us to get a fairly close approximation to where everything is. So we feel pretty confident that this is as reasonably accurate a map as you can have for an excavation that's going on in the early part of the 20th century. Hmm. And it was it was really quite genius that Douglas had the foresight to do that because even today, people still use those quarry maps and those relationships when dealing with isolated bones or partial bones and what things may be part of the same individual. And the University of Utah maps, which we have, have never appeared in print. Hmm. So we have a whole block of data that researchers have never seen. And that's part of what part of what's in that map. And then Rebecca Esplin, who is a graduate student for Brooks Britt down in BYU, is working on a big digitized map of the entire quarry, hmm. but really concentrating especially on the historic maps where we now have the data so we know the field number for every single bone on those historic maps, and then we can tie those to a database that says what it is, what element it is, what animal it came from, what's the field number, what's the catalog number, what's its current repository, what other numbers had been assigned to it, where it has appeared in scientific print. I mean, ideally, you would like to have a photo for each of those as well, but obviously that's a massive project. <laughs> and I think at some time we, we will probably bring in other institutions like the Carnegie and the Smithsonian who would be interested in being involved to gather that. But right now we're still working on the things that we can control <laughs> and have ownership to, which is a tremendous amount to begin with. Yeah, that's awesome. And then once you have that digital a map of all the previous excavations. That could be a huge help for your work, Taya. <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned that. <laughs> One of the things that we've been planning from the beginning for this is different ways to be able to look at that map when it's maybe before it's finished, depending on which pieces of code we get in first, right? Mm -hmm. So we want to be able to have people zoom in and out on that map. That's an obvious feature. Um, right now you can only pan around and we want, we want to be able to see the whole thing at once, and then we want to be able to filter it. So I want to be able to click something and then see just the bones that are at the Carnegie Museum mm. or just the bones that are, like, in Africa right now because mm. these bones have gone all over the world, and it's really amazing. Yeah. Maybe even with a map, although that might clutter it up. I don't know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> imagine also if you can filter that by taxa and mm -hmm. we did some early experiments with that in our 
in our code and it didn't come out in the version that's live now, but we had an, an older prototype where we were filtering by taxa and it was actually a lot of fun. Actually, there's a lot of applications for this for interpretive staff at the park too. So they got really excited about this when it was available and there's a, just barely enough internet access up at the <laughs> exhibit hall exhibit qual so that um, we can uh, have an iPad up there and it's actually a pretty convenient tool. We tested it out when we finally had a, a working prototype. We took our iPads up to the quarry hall and we were looking at it and I this is kind of a really cool moment for me. I was looking at the quarry wall from that second floor balcony and I was looking at the bones and trying to put myself in the place of someone who was who was visiting and maybe hadn't been there before and trying to remember my first time, which was a long time ago actually, <laughs> in nineteen ninety seven for the first time. But I looked at like one of the bones and then looked down at our website, which was on our iPad, and I matched it up on the relative places. So like, okay, if I go down from the Camasaurus skull and then over, yeah, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> I tapped on it. It opened up the middle modal window and here was information. I was like, oh my God, that's a Stegosaurus plate. This is awesome. <laughs> this is really cool. So ah, the potential of that when it's actually fully finished, I totally see it just being living in the core exhibit hall. And I don't know what the real plans for this are, but if there was actually a screen that we had. I know we talked about this, but <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> yeah. Once yeah. it's all digitized, though, the opportunities just keep coming. You could think about oh, like know. doing a projection of the old wall or something. Interesting. Or like VR. <laughs> like there's a million things you could do. Yeah. You know, the VR, that's an interesting question because I've totally thought about that. And I know, didn't we get a, a 3D scan of it finally, of the whole wall? So we've had a LiDAR mm -hmm scan done of the quarry wall um, pro bono by Autodesk. So we have about 4.2 billion measurements off of there and we have submillimeter accuracy. And we're next going to be doing photogrammetry to then lay over the LiDAR to get high resolution three-dimensional image of the quarry, which will be fantastic, just not for visitors, but for scientific researchers. <laughs> and I mean, to get back to the database that Tay was talking about, in terms of ways you could query the map, all of the major specimens that have been found at Dinosaur have been described, most of them more than once in the scientific literature, but there's still a very, very large number of, of bones that have not appeared in the scientific literature. Not that scientists haven't looked at them, they just haven't appeared in the literature. And what this project is doing in terms of science, for looking at how scientists would use it, is if you're coming to Dinosaur, and you, so you got to imagine Dinosaur is this huge sample of a dinosaur population from 150 million years ago. So we have lots and lots of animals of different ages, and you know they're all more or less living together at the same time. They're not at different quarries, at different levels, and at different distances from one another. So if you were interested, for example, in Camerasaurus, uh, and you wanted a quarry where there were adults and juveniles so you could study growth rates, you can go, theoretically, go to the map, query it for Camerasaurus, and not only see where all the bones came from, but where they are now. So you know what institutions you need to go to. And because many of the isolated bones haven't appeared in print, this may give you a much better idea of the what relevant material is in an institution, how much time you should spend there, and target exactly what elements you want to see first. That would be amazing. 
So for people who are interested in learning more or possibly getting involved if they can, is the best site CarnegieQuarry.com? Yes. <laughs> All right, good. We'll post that on our blog. One last point. So <laughs> a story I like to tell about dinosaur. I mean, Tay's heard this many, many times. But traditionally, the place that the general public, non-scientific community learns about dinosaurs has been by going to museums or in the Renaissance cabinets of curiosity where fossils have been collected from places brought together. They may be cleaned up and mounted or just put on display and people can see those. And, and you know, seeing a mounted skeleton is always an extremely impressive thing to do. And dinosaur skeletons are always the biggest draw for natural history museums. And that had, for hundreds of years, that was the way the public learned about dinosaurs. And that huge kind of philosophical jump occurred in the early 1950s when the Park Service decided to go ahead and develop an in-place exhibit at Dinosaur. And there, for the first time, we brought the museum to where the fossils were. And the public was able to see them being exposed and left in place just as they were deposited 150 million years ago. And that's been a phenomenal success with both the scientific community and the general public. So tying all this data to that change in the way that we talk about fossils is in a sense taking, we brought the museum to the quarry, and now we're taking the quarry and the museum to the world through the website. And I guess the greatest compliment is being imitated. And, and there's about 100 sites around the world where other fossils are now left in place and exposed. So it's kind of part of the history and legacy of dinosaur as a totally new way of looking at and understanding fossils. When we went there for the first time, actually, we've only been there once. Yeah. It was amazing because seeing all of them in place and the variety, like you said, how many animals were coexisting. You always see, you go to a natural history museum and they've got the stegosaurus next to the T-Rex and the whatever that doesn't make any sense. But seeing the actual set of dinosaurs that were all living together is really cool. So one last question. We ask everybody this. Uh, what's your favorite dinosaur? Whichever one I'm working on at the time. <laughs> I love all my children. <laughs> Well, today I'm going to say Stegosaurus because <laughs> I'm back in dinosaur mode, in Dinosaur National Monument mode, rather. <laughs> that is a good one. I want to give a shout out to some of the other people who worked on this project. Mm -hmm. So we only talked about the parts so far that Elliot and Trinity have worked on and Ben O'Toole did the illustrations. But um, Nicole Ridgewell did a ton of work the year before I was there in 2014 and also last summer. And she's still working. Um, she took a ton of photographs of fossils that we're using in the website now. So a lot of the ones that you see in there, in those modals, are by her. Uh, Sarah Ozer was there last summer as well, doing a lot of work on the archives. I'm not sure what else all she was doing because I wasn't there the whole time. But <laughs> Sarah also worked on looking and documenting in insect traces on the dinosaur bones on the quarry face where insects were feeding on the bones while they were out on the floodplain before they got washed in and buried in the bottom of the quarry. And so she was scrambling all over the quarry face most of the summer and taking notes and photographs. And that was a really interesting and needed piece of scientific data for the quarry that we didn't have. Yeah, that's something I didn't think about before. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. The insect traces on there are actually one of the more interesting 
<laughs> it's really interesting. And we didn't even talk about the unionoids. <laughs> There's for our shout out to our freshwater invertebrate friends. <laughs> We've got a bunch of unionoids. What's There's a unionoid? An, There's an article about them at, on the website, actually. Okay. Okay. <laughs> have to go look at it there. <laughs> I also want to mention Marie Jimenez, who spent uh, 2015 there with me as well. And she did so much work on the archiving, scanning, working on the database, doing metadata for me, and just so many, so many things. So she was in all of the little nooks and crannies that we didn't pay special attention to. <laughs> but she was a huge, huge, huge help, and she's become a good, very good friend of mine. Cool. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's quite a list of people on the website yes. that have contributed. Which yeah, is there's actually a lot I'm forgetting now. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're all on the website. Yeah. And one other person is Avesta Tahiri, who was a GIP last summer, and... She had a real passion for databases, she told me. So when she got here, I gave her the job of tracking down all the obscure specimens that have very complicated histories, traveled around through many museums, whereabouts are unknown. And she, fortunately, just loved doing that. She was a great bulldog (laughs) at it and actually tracked down and got photographs of specimens that we thought we would never ever be able to locate where they had gone awesome so she really fleshed out part of important parts of the database and that was not only good for us that was extremely helpful for rebecca who's the byu student who's working on the bigger more detailed maps so i mentioned that there are fossil specimens from carnegie quarry now all over the world Mm -hmm. If anyone has one of those specimens, could you take a picture of it and send it to us? <laughs> yeah, that's probably the way people get help the most, huh? If that would actually one. be pretty helpful, yeah, because I know people who work at these museums are going to listen to this. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> Sounds good. I think this is a really good example of having so many people come together and through dinosaurs and, and you meet so many people and you get to do all these great things and... I, I know with this podcast, we keep hearing more and more of these awesome stories. So thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> thanks so much again to Dan and Taya for taking the time to talk with us at SVP. It's a great conversation. Yeah, it was really fun. And we were talking to them quite a bit the night before we did the interview, too. And yeah, there's... Quite a bit of interesting stuff that goes on out there in the middle of nowhere, Utah. <laughs> a lot of history at Dinosaur National Monument, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really fascinating place. I really hope they get that full wall restored so that you could see even beyond the bounds of the current wall. That mm-hmm. seems like such an amazing thing. Now, before we get into the Dinosaur of the Day, we have another word from the Royal Tyrrell Museum. The Royal Tyrrell Museum is one of the largest and most respected paleontology museums in the world. The museum takes you on a journey through time that brings you face-to-face with some of Canada's mightiest dinosaurs. With nine ever-evolving galleries, fun hands-on activities, and the rugged beauty of Alberta's badlands that yields the greatest diversity of dinosaur fossils in the world, there's something for everyone. So we talked about this before, but the museum is kind of in the middle of nowhere. I think Edmonton is the nearest city, maybe Calgary, but it's a little ways up there. And that might seem like it's a deterrent getting to Drumheller, but it's actually really awesome. The main reason is that the whole town of Drumheller is focused on dinosaurs. Yes. There's all these dinosaurs all over the city, 
dressed up in different outfits and painted, painted different yeah. ways. Yeah. It, depending on if the knitting group has been by recently putting sweaters on them. <laughs> I think that just happened the one time. <laughs> I don't know. And then they also have the big T-Rex that you can climb up inside, which is, I think, the largest recreation of a dinosaur or something like that. It's really cool. It's like a hundred steps to get up into its mouth. And it's a lot of fun to get up in there. And on top of just kind of the dinosaur-centric town that makes it feel like more of a destination, the real fossils that are in the museum are being excavated and discovered really close to the museum itself. So you really feel like you're experiencing paleontology more than if you're somewhere like, even though we love it, the American Museum of Natural History, which basically went out to places like Drumheller. <laughs> and brought and, it back. Yeah, in Montana, and then shipped it a thousand or two thousand miles away. So you don't really get to experience where the bones were found as much. And yeah, there's hikes around and things like that. So you can really see where the bones came out. And another cool thing about it is there are other museums that are in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like we stopped at quite a few in Montana that we really like, but they're often very small when they're near these fossils. And it's just kind of a home base for the researchers to work out of. And then a lot of times the fossils end up getting shipped to a larger institution. But this to me is pretty unique that it's a large museum with a really amazing display space and an amazing lab right in the middle of all these dinosaur finds. So Yeah. And sometimes you can see them working on it. On yeah. The, on the fossils in front of you. Yep, especially in the winter. So it's a really cool spot. It's definitely worth visiting, and it's a good dinosaur-focused destination since that's the main thing that goes on in Drumheller. Definitely. So if you're looking to support paleontological research, the museum's membership program supports its scientific research, exhibits, and education programs and offers unlimited admission to the museum. And more information can be found at tyrolmuseum.com. And that's T-Y-R-R-E-L-L museum.com. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Saltosaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon. So thanks, Cole. The name Saltosaurus means lizard from Salta, and it has nothing to do with salt. It was <laughs> named for the Salta province where it was found. It was a titanosaur that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Argentina. And it was excavated in 1975 to 77 by Jose Fernando Bonaparte, Martin Vince, and Juan C. Leal. And it was described in 1980 by Jose Bonaparte. And Jaime Powell. The type species is Saltosaurus loricatus, and the species name means protected by small armored plates. The holotype is a sacrum connected to two ilia. There have been a couple species suggested to Saltosaurus, Robustus and Australis, but they're now considered to be another genus, Nucansaurus. More than 200 fossils have been found from at least two specimens of Saltosaurus, including teeth, vertebrae from the neck, back, hip, tail, parts of the shoulder and pelvis, and limb bones. Because of Saltosaurus, paleontologists have had to reconsider sauropods as having more defense than just being massive. So Saltosaurus was the first known sauropod to have osteoderms in its skin. Since then, it's been found in other titanosaurs, but it was the first. It had two types of osteoderms, large oval plates that were spiked and may have been in longitudinal 
rows along the back and small rounded ossicles in between the plates. And these had denser bone tissues than the plates. That's cool. It's like an ankylosaur had a baby with a brontosaurus. <laughs> Something like that. So its armor probably protected it from predators, and they probably lived in herds to protect their juveniles. In the 1920s, Friedrich von Huhn had found armor plates in the same area and thought that they were Loricosaurus, which was an ankylosaur, but now they're considered to be Saltosaurus. Rodolfo A. Coria and Luis M. Chiappi said that they think the osteoderms didn't start developing until after Saltosaurus hatched, and this is based on embryos that were found. And this was in another formation in Patagonia, Argentina. Scientists have found a titanosaur nesting site where several hundred of them dug holes with their back feet and laid clutches, about 25 eggs each, and buried their nests. And these eggs were small, about 4 to 5 inches or 11 to 12 centimeters in diameter, and they had fossilized embryos with skin impressions showing bead-like scales with a similar armor pattern to Saltosaurus. I wonder why they thought that they dug with their hind feet. I couldn't find that. I guess it's the way it looks, uh, Doug, something. Interesting. Yeah. So Saltosaurus is considered to be small for a sauropod, though it was still quite large. It <laughs> was about 42 feet or 12.8 meters long and weighed 6.8 tons, though Powell estimated it to be about 20 feet or 6 meters long, and Gregory Pollas estimated it to be about 29 feet or 8.5 meters long and weighing 2.5 tons. It's quite a range. That is. It had a short neck and stubby limbs, short hands and feet, and a wide belly, which sounds kind of funny. It was shaped like a hippo, so Powell thought it might be aquatic. It had spongy tail vertebrae, air-filled holes covered those bones, which helped make it lighter, and it had cylindrical teeth. Like a good herbivore. Yeah, just thinking that, just like that article. <laughs> yep. So... Saltosaurus was a titanosaur, and titanosaurs are a group of sauropods, very large herbivores that lived during the last 30 million years of the Mesozoic era. Some titanosaur species are the largest land-living animals discovered, but in many cases, scientists have found incomplete fossils. The name titanosaur came from the titans of ancient Greek mythology, and their fossils have been found on all continents, including Antarctica, and the most titanosaurs lived in the southern continents, which was then part of the supercontinent Gondwana. Compared to other sauropods, titanosaurs had small heads that were also wide, with large nostrils and crests formed by nasal bones. Interesting. I don't think of sauropods as having particularly large heads, so those have had really small heads. Yeah. Well, at least small comparatively. I'm sure if you're face-to-face -face with a <laughs> titanosaur true. head, it would look large. <laughs> That's true. And our fun fact of the day is actually about titanosaurs. What a coincidence. So despite having Titan in its name, Giraffa-Titan is not a titanosaurid, but it's instead a brachiosaurid. The word Titan in Giraffa-Titan is just used to mean giant, making its name literally giant giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's kind of weird with the way all these Latinized names end up working out. You end up with things that are named like Titan when they're not titanosaurs and you have to constantly parse out where it ends up in the phylogeny. It's never simple. <laughs> but giant giraffe, that's what giraffe titan is. I like it. <laughs> it's kind of a weird choice since we know it's not a mammal. It doesn't even really look like a giraffe. 
but I guess, except for the long neck. Yeah, and it is more upright than some of the other sauropods. So, yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy these podcasts, then we would really appreciate a review on iTunes. Or you can also join our growing community on Patreon at patreon.com slash I know dino. Thanks again. And until next time. Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter at iknowdino.